Chapter forty eight, part five of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter forty eight Succession and Characters of the Greek Emperors, part five. A premature death had swept away the two eldest sons of John the Handsome. Of the two survivors, Isaac and Manuel, his judgment or affection preferred the younger, and the choice of their dying prince was ratified by the soldiers, who had applauded the valour of his favourite in the Turkish war. The faithful Axak hastened to the capital, secured the person of Isaac in honourable confinement, and purchased with a gift of two hundred pounds of silver, the leading ecclesiastics of St. Sophia, who possessed a decisive voice in the consecration of an emperor. With his veteran and affectionate troops, Manuel soon visited Constantinople. His brother acquiesced in the title of Sebastor Creator. His subjects admired the lofty stature and martial graces of their new sovereign, and listened with credulity to the flattering promise that he blended the wisdom of age with the activity and vigour of youth. By the experience of his government they were taught that he emulated the spirit and shared the talents of his father whose social virtues were buried in the grave. A reign of thirty-seven years is filled by a perpetual, though various, warfare against the Turks, the Christians, and the hordes of the wilderness beyond the Danube. The arms of Manuel were exercised on Mount Taurus, in the plains of Hungary, on the coast of Italy and Egypt, and on the seas of Sicily and Greece. The influence of his negotiations extended from Jerusalem to Rome and Russia, and the Byzantine monarchy, for a while, became an object of respect or terror to the powers of Asia and Europe. Educated in the silk and purple of the East, Manuel possessed the iron temper of a soldier, which cannot easily be paralleled, except in the lives of Richard I of England and of Charles XII of Sweden. Such was his strength and exercise in arms, that Raymond, surnamed the Hercules of Antioch, was incapable of wielding the lance and buckler of the Greek emperor. In a famous tournament, he entered the lists on a fiery courser, and overturned in his first career two of the stoutest of the Italian knights. The first in the charge, the last in the retreat. His friends and his enemies alike trembled, the former for his safety, and the latter for their own. After posting an ambuscade in a wood, he rode forwards in search of some perilous adventure, accompanied only by his brother and the faithful Axak, who refused to desert their sovereign. Eighteen horsemen, after a short combat, fled before them, but the numbers of the enemy increased, the march of the reinforcement was tardy and fearful, and Manuel, without receiving a wound, cut his way through a squadron of five hundred Turks. In a battle against the Hungarians, impatient of the slowness of his troops, he snatched a standard from the head of the column, and was the first, almost alone, who passed a bridge that separated him from the enemy. 
In the same country, after transporting his army beyond the save, he sent back the boats, with an order under pain of death to their commander, that he should leave them to conquer or die in that hostile land. In the siege of Corfu, towing after him a captive galley, the emperor stood aloft on the poop, opposing against the volleys of darts and stones, a large buckler and a flowing sail. Nor could he have escaped inevitable death, had not the Sicilian admiral enjoined his archers to respect the person of a hero. In one day he is said to have slain above forty of the barbarians with his own hand. He returned to the camp, dragging along four Turkish prisoners, whom he had tied to the rings of his saddle. He was ever the foremost to provoke or to accept a single combat, and the gigantic champions who encountered his arm were transpeared by the lance, or cut asunder by the sword of the invincible Manuel. The story of his exploits, which appear as a model or a copy of the romances of chivalry, may induce a reasonable suspicion of the veracity of the Greeks. I will not, to vindicate their credit, endanger my own. Yet I may observe that, in the long series of their annals, Manuel is the only prince who has been the subject of similar exaggeration. With the valour of a soldier, he did not unite the skill or prudence of a general. His victories were not productive of any permanent or useful conquest, and his Turkish laurels were blasted in his last unfortunate campaign, in which he lost his army in the mountains of Pisidia, and owed his deliverance to the generosity of the sultan. But the most singular feature in the character of Manuel is the contrast and vicissitude of labour and sloth, of hardiness and effeminacy. In war he seemed ignorant of peace, in peace he appeared incapable of war. In the field he slept in the sun or in the snow, tired in the longest marches the strength of his men and horses, and shared with a smile the abstinence or diet of the camp. No sooner did he return to Constantinople than he resigned himself to the arts and pleasures of a life of luxury. The expense of his dress, his table, and his palace surpassed the measure of his predecessors, and whole summer days were idly wasted in the delicious isles of the Propontis, in the incestuous love of his niece Theodora. The double cost of a warlike and dissolute prince exhausted the revenue and multiplied the taxes and Manuel, in the distress of his last Turkish campaign, endured a bitter reproach from the mouth of a desperate soldier. As he quenched his thirst, he complained that the water of a fountain was mingled with Christian blood. "'It is not the first time,' exclaimed a voice from the crowd, "'that you have drunk, O Emperor, the blood of your Christian subjects.' Manuel Comnenus was twice married. To the virtuous Bertha, or Irene of Germany, and to the beauteous Maria, a French or Latin princess of Antioch. The only daughter of his first wife was destined for Bella, a Hungarian prince, who was educated at Constantinople under the name of Alexis. And the consummation of their nuptials might have transferred the Roman sceptre to a race of free and warlike barbarians. But as soon as Maria of Antioch had given a son and heir to the empire, the presumptive rights of Bella were abolished, and he was deprived of his promised bride. But the Hungarian prince resumed his name and the kingdom of his fathers, 
and displayed such virtues as might excite the regret and envy of the Greeks. The son of Maria was named Alexis, and at the age of ten years he ascended the Byzantine throne, after his father's decease had closed the glories of the Comemnian line. The fraternal concord of the two sons of the great Alexis had been sometimes clouded by an opposition of interest and passion. By ambition, Isaac, the Sebasto creator, was excited to flight and rebellion, from whence he was reclaimed by the firmness and clemency of John the Handsome. The errors of Isaac, the father of the emperors of Trebizond, were short and venial. But John, the elder of his sons, renounced for ever his religion. Provoked by a real or imaginary insult of his uncle, he escaped from the Roman to the Turkish camp. His apostate was rewarded with the sultan's daughter, the title of Chelebi, or noble, and the inheritance of a princely estate. And in the fifteenth century, Mohammed II boasted of his imperial descent from the Comenian family. Andronicus, the younger brother of John, son of Isaac, and grandson of Alexius Comnenus, is one of the most conspicuous characters of the age, and his genuine adventures might form the subject of a very singular romance. To justify the choice of three ladies of royal birth, it is incumbent on me to observe that their fortunate lover was cast in the best proportions of strength and beauty, and that the want of the softer graces was supplied by a manly countenance, a lofty stature, athletic muscles, and the air and deportment of a soldier. The preservation in his old age of health and vigour was the reward of temperance and exercise. A piece of bread and a draught of water was often his sole and evening repast, and if he tasted of a wild boar or a stag, which he had roasted with his own hands, it was the well-earned fruits of a laborious chase. Dexterous in arms, he was ignorant of fear. His persuasive eloquence could bend to every situation and character of life. His style, though not his practice, was fashioned by the example of St. Paul. And, in every deed of mischief, he had a heart to resolve, a head to contrive, and a hand to execute. In his youth, after the death of the Emperor John, he followed the retreat of the Roman army. But in the march through Asia Minor, design or accident tempted him to wander in the mountains. The hunter was encompassed by the Turkish huntsmen, and he remained some time a reluctant or willing captive in the power of the sultan. His virtues and vices recommended him to the favour of his cousin. He shared the perils and the pleasures of Manuel, and while the emperor lived in public incest with his niece Theodora, the affections of her sister Eudocia were seduced and enjoyed by Andronicus. Above the decencies of her sex and rank, she gloried in the name of his concubine, and both the palace and the camp could witness that she slept, or watched, in the arms of her lover. She accompanied him to his military command of Cilicia, the first scene of his valour and imprudence. He pressed, with active ardour, the siege of Mopsuestia. The day was employed in the boldest attacks, but the night was wasted in song and dance, and a band of Greek comedians formed the choicest part of his routine. 
Andronicus was surprised by the sally of a vigilant foe. But, while his troops fled in disorder, his invincible lance transpeared the thickest ranks of the Armenians. On his return to the imperial camp in Macedonia, he was received by Manuel with public smiles and a private reproof. But the duchies of Nasius, Branzabar, and Castoria were the reward or consolation of the unsuccessful general. Eudocia still attended his motions. At midnight their tent was suddenly attacked by her angry brothers, impatient to expiate her infamy in his blood. His daring spirit refused her advance, and the disguise of a female habit. And boldly, starting from his couch, he drew his sword and cut his way through the numerous assassins. It was here that he first betrayed his ingratitude and treachery. He engaged in a treasonable correspondence with the king of Hungary and the German emperor, approached the royal tent at a suspicious hour with a drawn sword, and, under the mask of a Latin soldier, avowed an intention of revenge against a mortal foe, and imprudently praised the fleetness of his horse as an instrument of flight and safety. The monarch disassembled his suspicions, but, after the close of the campaign, Andronicus was arrested and strictly confined in a tower of the palace of Constantinople. In this prison he was left about twelve years, a most painful restraint, from which the thirst of action and pleasure perpetually urged him to escape. Alone and pensive, he perceived some broken bricks in a corner of the chamber, and gradually widened the passage, till he had explored a dark and forgotten recess. Into this hole he conveyed himself, and the remains of his provisions, replacing the bricks in their former position, and erasing with care the footsteps of his retreat. At the hour of the customary visit, his guards were amazed by the silence and solitude of the prison, and reported, with shame and fear, his incomprehensible flight. The gates of the palace and city were instantly shut, the strictest orders were dispatched into the provinces for the recovery of the fugitive, and his wife, on the suspicion of a pious act, was basely imprisoned in the same tower. At the dead of night she beheld a spectre. She recognized her husband. They shared their provisions, and a son was the fruit of these stolen interviews, which alleviated the tediousness of their confinement. In the custody of a woman, the vigilance of the keepers was insensibly relaxed, and the captive had accomplished his real escape, when he was discovered, brought back to Constantinople, and loaded with a double chain. At length he found the moment and the means of his deliverance. A boy, his domestic servant, intoxicated the guards, and obtained in wax the impression of the key. By the diligence of his friends, a similar key, with a bundle of ropes, was introduced into the prison, in the bottom of a hogshead. Andronicus employed, with industry and courage, the instruments of his safety, unlocked the doors, descended from the tower, concealed himself a day among the bushes, and scaled in the night the garden wall of the palace. A boat was stationed for his reception. He visited his own house, embraced his children, cast away his chain, mounted a fleet horse, and directed his rapid course towards the banks of the Danube. 
At Ancaeolus in Thrace, an intrepid friend supplied him with horses and money. He passed the river, traversed with speed the desert of Moldavia and the Carpathian hills, and had almost reached the town of Halix in the Polish Russia, when he was intercepted by a party of Wallachians, who resolved to convey their important captive to Constantinople. His presence of mind again extracted him from danger. Under the pretense of sickness, he dismounted in the night, and was allowed to step aside from the troop. He planted in the ground his long staff, clothed it with his cap and upper garment, and, stealing into the wood, left a phantom to amuse, for some time, the eyes of the Wallachians. From Halix he was honourably conducted to Quio, the residence of the great duke. The subtle Greek soon obtained the esteem and confidence of Erosalus. His character could assume the manners of every climate, and the barbarians applauded his strength and courage in the chase of the elks and bears of the forest. In this northern region he deserved the forgiveness of Manuel, who solicited the Russian prince, who solicited the Russian prince, to join his arms in the invasion of Hungary. The influence of Andronicus achieved this important service. His private treaty was signed with the promise of fidelity on one side, and of oblivion on the other. And he marched, at the head of the Russian cavalry, from the Borosthenes to the Danube. In his reinstatement, Manuel had ever sympathized with the martial and dissolute character of his cousin, and his free pardon was sealed in the assault of Zemlin, in which he was second, and second only, to the valour of the emperor. No sooner was the exile restored to freedom and his country than his ambition revived, at first to his own, and at length to the public misfortune. A daughter of Manuel was a feeble bar to the succession of the more deserving males of the Comemnian blood. Her future marriage with the prince of Hungary was repugnant to the hopes or prejudices of the princes and nobles. But when an oath of allegiance was required to the presumptive heir, Andronicus alone asserted the honour of the Roman name, declined the unlawful engagement, and boldly protested against the adoption of a stranger. His patriotism was offensive to the emperor, but he spoke the sentiments of the people, and was removed from the royal presence by an honourable banishment, a second command of the Sicilian frontier, with the absolute disposal of the revenues of Cyprus. In this station the Armenians again exercised his courage and exposed his negligence, and the same rebel, who baffled all his operations, was unhorsed, and almost slain by the vigour of his lance. But Andronicus soon discovered a more easy and pleasing conquest. The beautiful Philippa, sister of the Empress Maria, and daughter of Raymond of and daughter of Raymond of Poitio, the Latin prince of Antioch. For her sake he deserted his station, and wasted the summer in balls and tournaments. To his love she sacrificed her innocence, her reputation, and the offer of an advantageous marriage. But the resentment of Manuel for this domestic affront interrupted his pleasures. Andronicus left the indiscreet princess to weep and to repent, and, with a band of desperate adventurers, 
undertook the pilgrimage of Jerusalem. His birth, his martial renown, and professions of zeal, announced him as the champion of the cross. He soon captivated both the clergy and the king, and the Greek prince was invested with the lordship of Eretus on the coast of Phoenicia. In his neighbourhood resided a young and handsome queen, of his own nation and family, great-granddaughter of the Emperor Alexis, and widow of Baldwin III, King of Jerusalem. She visited and loved her kinsman. Theodora was the third victim of his amorous seduction, and her shame was more public and scandalous than that of her predecessors. The Emperor still thirsted for revenge, and his subjects and allies of the Syrian frontier were repeatedly pressed to seize the person and put out the eyes of the fugitive. In Palestine he was no longer safe, but the tender Theodora revealed his danger and accompanied his flight. The Queen of Jerusalem was exposed to the east, his, obi his obsequious concubine, and two illegitimate children were the living monuments of her weakness. Damascus was his first refuge, and in the characters of the great Noradin and his servant Saladin, the superstitious Greek might learn to revere the virtues of the Mussulmans. As a friend of Noradin, he visited, most probably, Baghdad and the courts of Persia, and, after a long circuit round the Caspian Sea and the mountains of Georgia, he finally settled among the Turks of Asia Minor, the hereditary enemies of his country. The Sultan of Colonia afforded a hospitable retreat to Andronicus, his mistress, and his band of outlaws. The debt of gratitude was repaid by frequent inroads in the Roman province of Trebizond, and he seldom returned without an ample harvest of spoil and of Christian captives. In the story of his adventures, he was fond of comparing himself to David, who escaped, by a long exile, the snares of the wicked. But the royal prophet, he presumed to add, was content to lurk on the borders of Judea, to slay an Amalekite, and to threaten, in his miserable state, the life of the avaricious Nabal. The excursions of the Comnenian prince had a wider range, and he had spread over the eastern world the glory of his name and religion. By a sentence of the Greek church, the licentious rover had been separated from the faithful. But even this excommunication may prove that he never abjured the profession of Christianity. His vigilance had eluded or repelled the open and secret persecution of the emperor but he was at length ensnared by the captivity of his female companion. The governor of Trebizond succeeded in his attempt to surprise the person of Theodora. The queen of Jerusalem and her two children were sent to Constantinople, and their loss embittered the tedious solitude of banishment. The fugitive implored and obtained a final pardon, with leave to throw himself at the feet of his sovereign, who was satisfied with the submission of this haughty spirit. Prostrate on the ground, he deplored with tears and groans the guilt of his past rebellion. Nor would he presume to arise unless some faithful subject would drag him to the foot of the throne, 
by an iron chain with which he had secretly encircled his neck. This extraordinary penance excited the wonder and pity of the assembly. His sins were forgiven by the church and state, but the just suspicion of Manuel fixed his residence at a distance from the court. At Onoe, a town of Pontus, surrounded with rich vineyards and situate on the coast of the Euxin. The death of Manuel and the disorders of the minority soon opened the fairest field to his ambition. The emperor was a boy of twelve or fourteen years of age, without vigour or wisdom or experience. His mother, the empress Mary, abandoned her person and government to a favourite of the Comnenian name, and his sister, another Mary, whose husband, an Italian, was decorated with the title of Caesar, excited a conspiracy and at length an insurrection against her odious stepmother. The provinces were forgotten, the capital was in flames, and a century of peace and order was overthrown in the vice and weakness of a few months. A civil war was kindled in Constantinople. The two factions fought a bloody battle in the square of the palace, and the rebels sustained a regular siege in the cathedral of St. Sophia. The patriarch labelled with honest zeal to heal the wounds of the Republic. The most respectable patriots called aloud for a guardian and avenger, and every tongue repeated the praise of the talents and even the virtues of Andronicus. In his retirement he affected to revolve the solemn duties of his oath. If the safety or honour of the imperial family be threatened, I will reveal and oppose the mischief to the utmost of my power. His correspondence with the patriarch and patricians was seasoned with apt quotations from the Psalms of David and the epistles of St. Paul, and he patiently waited till he was called to her deliverance by the voice of his country. In his march from Onoe to Constantinople, his slender train insensibly swelled to a crowd and an army. His professions of religion and loyalty were mistaken for the language of his heart and the simplicity of a foreign dress, which showed to an advantage his majestic stature, displayed a lively image of his poverty and exile. All opposition sank before him. He reached the straits of the Thracian Bosphorus. The Byzantine navy sailed from the harbour to receive and transport the saviour of the empire. The torrent was loud and irresistible, and the insects, who had basked in the sunshine of royal favour, "'disappeared at the blast of the storm. "'It was the first care of Andronicus to occupy the palace, "'to salute the emperor, to confine his mother, "'to punish her minister, "'and to restore the public order and tranquillity. "'He then visited the sepulchre of Manuel. "'The spectators were ordered to stand aloof, "'but as he bowed in the attitude of prayer, "'they heard, or thought they heard, a murmur of triumph or revenge. I no longer fear thee, my old enemy, who has driven me a vagabond to every climate of the earth. Thou art safely deposited under a sevenfold dome, from whence thou can never arise, to the signal of the last trumpet. It is now my turn, and speedily will I trample on thy ashes and thy posterity. From his subsequent tyranny, we may impute such feelings to the man and the moment. 
but it is not extremely probable that he gave an articulate sound to his secret thoughts. In the first months of his administration, his designs were veiled by a fair semblance of hypocrisy, which could delude only the eyes of the multitude. The coronation of Alexius was performed with due solemnity, and his perfidious guardian, holding in his hands the body and blood of Christ, most fervently declared that he lived, and was ready to die, for the service of his beloved pupil. But his numerous adherents were instructed to maintain that the sinking empire must perish in the hands of a child, that the Romans could only be served by a veteran prince, bold in arms, skilful in policy, and taught to reign by the long experience of fortune in mankind, and that it was the duty of every citizen to force the reluctant modesty of Andronicus to undertake the burden of the public care. The young emperor was himself constrained to join his voice to the general acclamation, and to solicit the association of a colleague, who instantly degraded him from the supreme rank, secluded his person, and verified the rough declaration of the patriarch, that Alexius might be considered as dead, so soon as he was committed to the custody of his guardian. But his death was preceded by the imprisonment and execution of his mother, after blackening her reputation, and inflaming against her the passions of the multitude, the tyrant accused and tried the empress for a treasonable correspondence with the king of Hungary. His own son, a youth of honour and humanity, avowed his abhorrence of this flagatious act, and three of the judges had the merit of preferring their conscience to their safety. But the obsequious tribunal, without requiring any reproof, or hearing any defence, condemned the widow of Manuel, and her unfortunate son subscribed the sentence of her death. Maria was strangled, her corpse was buried in the sea, and her memory was wounded by the insult most offensive to female vanity, a false and ugly representation of her beauteous form. The fate of her son was no longer deferred. He was strangled with a bowstring, and the tyrant, insensible to pity or remorse, after surveying the body of the innocent youth, struck it rudely with his foot. "'Thy father,' he cried, "'was a knave, thy mother a whore, and thyself a fool.' The Roman sceptre, the reward of his crimes, was held by Andronicus about three years and a half, as the guardian or sovereign of the empire." His government exhibited a singular contrast of vice and virtue. When he listened to his passions, he was a scourge. When he consulted his reason, the father of his people. In the exercise of private justice, he was equitable and rigorous. A shameful and pernicious venalty was abolished, and the offices were filled with the most deserving candidates, by a prince who had sense to choose, and severity to punish. He prohibited the inhumane practice of pillaging the goods and persons of shipwrecked mariners. The provinces, so long the objects of oppression or neglect, revived in prosperity and plenty, and millions applauded the distant blessings of his reign, while he was cursed by the witnesses of his daily cruelties. The ancient proverb, that bloodthirsty is the man who returns from banishment to power, had been applied, 
with too much truth, to Marius and Tiberius, and was now verified for the third time in the life of Andronicus. His memory was stored with a black list of the enemies and rivals, who had traduced his merit, opposed his greatness, or insulted his misfortunes. And the only comfort of his exile was a sacred hope and promise of revenge. The necessary extinction of the young emperor and his mother imposed the fatal obligation of extirpating the friends, who hated, and might punish, the assassin, and the repetition of murder rendered him less willing and less able to forgive. A horrid narrative of the victims who he sacrificed by poison or the sword, by the sea or the flames, would be less expressive of his cruelty than the appellation of the halcyon days, which was applied to a rare and bloodless week of repose. The tyrant strove to transfer, on the laws and judges, some portion of his guilt. But the mask was fallen, and his subjects could no longer mistake the true author of their calamities. The noblest of the Greeks, most especially those, by descent or alliance, might dispute the Comnenian inheritance, escaped from the monster's den. Nice and Prusa, Sicily or Cyprus, were their places of refuge, and as their flight was already criminal, they aggravated their offence by an open revolt, and the imperial title. Yet Andronicus resisted the daggers and swords of his most formidable enemies. Nice and Prusa were reduced and chastised. The Sicilians were content with the sack of Thessalonica, and the distance of Cyprus was no more propitious to the rebel than to the tyrant. His throne was subverted by a rival without merit, and a people without arms. Isaac and Jealous, a descendant in the female line from the great Alexius, was marked as a victim by the prudence or superstition of the emperor. In a moment of despair, Angelus defended his life and liberty, slew the executioner, and fled to the church of St. Sophia. The sanctuary was insensibly filled with a curious and mournful crowd, who, in his fate, prognosticated their own. But their lamentions were soon turned to curses, and their curses to threats. They dared to ask, Why do we fear? Why do we obey? We are many, and he is one. Our patience is the only bond of our slavery. With the dawn of day, the city burst into great sedition. The prisons were thrown open. The coldest and most servile were roused to the defence of their country. And Isaac, the second of the name, was raised from the sanctuary to the throne. Unconscious of his danger, the tyrant was absent, withdrawn from the toils of state, in the delicious isles of the Propontis. He had contracted an indecent marriage with Alice, or Agnes, daughter of Louis the Seventh of France, and relicit of the unfortunate Alexius. And his society, more suitable to his temper than to his age, was composed of a young wife and a favourite concubine. On the first alarm he rushed to Constantinople, impatient for the blood of the guilty. But he was astonished by the silence of the palace, the tumult of the city, and the general desertion of mankind. 
Andronicus proclaimed a free pardon to his subjects. They neither desired nor would grant forgiveness. He offered to resign the crown to his son Manuel, but the virtues of the son could not expiate his father's crimes. The sea was still open for his retreat, but the news of the revolution had flown along the coast. When fear had ceased, obedience was no more. The imperial galley was pursued and taken by an armed brigantine, and the tyrant was dragged to the presence of Isaac Angelus, loaded with fetters and a long chain round his neck. His eloquence and the tears of his female companions pleaded in vain for his life. But, instead of the decencies of a legal execution, the new monarch abandoned the criminal to the numerous sufferers, whom he had deprived of a father, a husband, or a friend. His teeth and hair, an eye and a hand, were torn from him, as a poor compensation for their loss, and a short respite was allowed, that he might feel the bitterness of death. Astride on a camel, without any danger of a rescue, he was carried through the city, and the basest of the populace rejoiced to trample on the fallen majesty of their prince. After a thousand blows and outrages, Andronicus was hung by the feet between two pillars that supported the statues of a wolf and a sow, and every hand that could reach the public enemy inflicted on his body some mark of ingenious or brutal cruelty till two friendly or furious Italians plunged their swords into his body, released him from all human punishment. In this long and painful agony, Lord have mercy upon me, and why will you bruise a broken reed, were the only words that escaped from his mouth. Our hatred for the tyrant is lost in pity for the man. Nor can we blame his pusillanimous resignation, since a Greek Christian was no longer master of his life. I have been tempted to expatiate on the extraordinary character and adventures of Andronicus, but I shall here terminate the series of the Greek emperors since the time of Heraclius. The branches that sprung from the Comimnian trunk had insensibly withered, and the male line was continued only in the posterity of Andronicus himself who, in the public confusion, usurped the sovereignty of Trezebond, so obscure in history, and so famous in romance. A private citizen of Philadelphia, Constantine Angelus, has emerged to wealth and honours by his marriage with the daughter of the emperor Alexius. His son Andronicus is conspicuous only by his cowardice. His grandson Isaac punished and succeeded the tyrant but he was dethroned by his own vices and the ambition of his brother, and their discord introduced the Latins to the conquest of Constantinople, the first great period in the fall of the Eastern Empire. If we compute the number and duration of the reigns, it will be found that a period of six hundred years is filled by sixty emperors, including, in the Augustian line, some female sovereigns and, deducting some usurpers who were never acknowledged in the capital, and some princes who did not live to possess their inheritance. The average proportion will allow ten years for each emperor, far below the chronological rule of Sir Isaac Newton, 
who, from the experience of more recent and regular monarchies, has defined but eighteen or twenty years as the term of an ordinary reign. The Byzantine Empire was most tranquil and prosperous when it could acquiesce in hereditary succession. Five dynasties, the Heraclean, Isaurian, Amorian, Basilean, and Comemnian families, enjoyed and transmitted the royal patrimony during their respected series of five, four, three, six, and four generations. Several princes numbered the years of their reign and those of their infancy. And Constantine the Seventh and his two grandsons occupy the space of an entire century. But in the intervals of the Byzantine dynasties, the succession is rapid and broken, and the name of a successful candidate is speedily erased by a more fortunate competitor. Many were the paths that led to the summit of royalty. The fabric of rebellion was overthrown by the stroke of conspiracy, or undermined by the silent arts of intrigue. The favourites of the soldiers or people, of the senate or clergy, of the women and eunuchs, were alternatively clothed with the purple. The means of their elevation were base, and their end was often contemptible or tragic. A being of the nature of man, endowed with the same facilities, but with a longer measure of existence, would cast down a smile of pity and contempt on the crimes and follies of human ambition so eager in a narrow span, to grasp but a precarious and short-lived enjoyment. It is thus that the experience of history exalts and enlarges the horizon of our intellectual view. In a composition of some days, in a perusal of some hours, six hundred years have rolled away, and the duration of a life or reign is contracted to a fleeting moment. The grave is ever beside the throne. The success of a criminal is almost instantly followed by the loss of his prize, and our immortal reason survives and disdains the sixty phantoms of kings who have passed before our eyes, and faintly dwell on our remembrance. The observation that, in every age and climate, ambition has prevailed with the same commanding energy, may abate the surprise of a philosopher. But while he condemns the vanity, he may search the motive of this universal desire to hold and obtain the sceptre of dominion. To the greater part of the Byzantine series, we cannot reasonably ascribe the love of fame and of mankind. The virtue alone of John Comnenus was beneficent and pure. The most illustrious of the princes, who precede or follow that respectable name, have trod with some dexterity and vigour the crooked and bloody paths of a selfish policy. In scrutinising the imperfect characters of Leo the Asaurian, Basil I, and Alexius Comnenus, of Theophilus, the second Basil, and Manuel Comnenus, our esteem and censure are almost equally balanced, and the remainder of the imperial crowd could only desire and expect to be forgotten by posterity. Was personal happiness the aim and object of their ambition? I shall not discant on the vulgar topics of the misery of kings, but I may surely observe that their condition, of all others, is the most pregnant with fear and the least susceptible of hope. For these opposite passions a larger scope was allowed in the revolutions of antiquity 
than in the smooth and solid temper of the modern world, which cannot easily repeat either the triumph of Alexander or the fall of Darius. But the peculiar infelicity of the Byzantine princes exposed them to domestic perils, without affording any lively promise of foreign conquest. From the pinnacles of greatness, Andronicus was precipitated by a death more cruel and shameful than that of the malefactor. But the most glorious of his predecessors had much more to dread from their subjects than to hope from their enemies. The army was licentious without spirit, the nation turbulent without freedom, the barbarians of the east and west pressed on the monarchy, and the loss of the provinces was terminated by the final servitude of the capital. The entire series of Roman emperors, from the first of the Caesars to the last of the Constantines, extends above fifteen hundred years, and the term of dominion, unbroken by foreign conquests, surpasses the measure of the ancient monarchies, the Assyrians or Medes, the successors of Sirius, or those of Alexander. End of chapter 48, part 5 End of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 4, by Edward Gibbon